Our leader will now share for 20 to 25 minutes describing what it is like, what happened, and what it is like now. Our leader for tonight is Frank. Hi, my name is my, Hi, my name is Frank and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And to prove that I'm a compulsive reader, I'll pass my pictures around. Um, I say recovered because I, that's what the first 100 alcoholics called themselves in the big book. They said that they were recovered alcoholics. And recovered does not mean cured. Cured would mean it would be impossible for me to ever take that first bite again. Recovered means that I, am, I have a temporary reprieve contingent on my maintenance of my spiritual condition. And I can do that one day at a time. So that's what I mean by recovered compulsive reader. And um, I, I know a lot of you here, but are, are some of you haven't heard my story before. Is that true? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the high-level view. Um, I've actually been coming to OA for 40 years. In August of 79 is when I came to my very first meeting. And I, uh, my top weight before OA was 430 pounds. I actually walked in the door at 380 pounds, and I lost 180 pounds in my first year in the program. I got down to my goal weight of 200 pounds, and I stayed near there for about nine years. And then I started a long period of alternating relapse, recovery, relapse, recovery, maybe you know six months of relapse, six months of recovery, a week of relapse, a week of recovery. The problem is I gained more weight in the relapse periods than I lost during the recovery periods. So my weight went up like a sawtooth, up and up and up and up, and I got to a top weight during that relapse of 460 pounds. And I, um, in the year 2000, I was lucky enough to be able to retire young, and I was going to work this program in retirement and go to a lot of meetings, and I started my current absence in 2006. So there were six more years of recovery, of, of not recovering, uh, alternating relapse and recovery um, since I retired. But in, in 2006, I, I went to, before I, before I went into the relapse recovery period, I went to a lot of OA events. I went to Region 2 conventions, World Service conventions. They had them every year back then. And um, I was the chairperson of the intergroup, and I was the World Service Business Conference delegate. And, you know, I knew the members of the Board of Trustees personally of Overeaters Anonymous. And so my ego was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was between sponsors. Um, one sponsor had moved away. I got another sponsor. He moved away. And I had that first binge back, you know, nine years into the program. And the, the first binge was that um, at that time, if I went to a buffet, the rule was that I could have one plate. Now, it could be close to avalanching off the edge of the plate, but if it all stayed on one plate, it would be legal. And hopefully it was mostly salad, right? So that was the plan. And then this time I went back for a second and third, but they were, they were smaller, but you know, three does not equal one. But I couldn't tell anybody about it because I had all these service positions that had abstinence requirements. And I wanted to go to the World Service Business Conference that year. It was coming up a few months away, a few months later. So it took me you know, a, a month or two of slipping and sliding until finally I admitted that I wasn't abstinent and I gave up my service positions and then that started my uh, long period of relapse and recovery. And, um, and the thing is, when I was in that long period of relapse, alternating relapse and recovery, I didn't go to a lot of events. I just went to my one meeting a week, basically. I had one meeting a week that I was my home meeting, and I went to that almost every week. I went to more meetings when I was in recovery periods and less meetings when I was in the relapse periods, and there's definitely a correlation between those two for me. I need to go to meetings, even now. 
And, um, and then um, about in 2006, all I can say is that I got sick and tired of being sick and tired of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And I, I took a deeper level of surrender when I decided to go to the Region 2 convention, which was in Oakland that year. So I went to the convention, and there I saw all my old friends who had been go continued to go to conventions all those years, and I hadn't. So I, you know, I got to reconnect with the people that I used to know, and I heard a lot of recovery, and I decided to do 90 meetings in 90 days, and it's a lot easier when you're retired to do that. And um, then when I finished that, I actually kept up a meeting a day for about three years. And there were some days when I missed the meeting, but then I would do two meetings another day to make up for it. So the long-term average was at least meeting a day. So that's my story. And then, you know, I, I just recovered back then. And, you know, 13 years ago, I started my current recovery. And I was at 400 pounds at that time on, when I started my recovery. And um, I'm not quite at my goal weight right now. And I can tell you a little story about that at the end if I have time. So the main topic, that's my story in a nutshell. But the main topic I wanted to talk to about today is kind of recovery from relapse and the first step. Because as far as I'm concerned, the first step is the most important step to get recovery from relapse. It's the most important step to prevent relapse. You know, if it's when I take, when I don't um, fully admit that I am powerless over food, that's when I'm in trouble. And the way that that shows up for me is, um, well, first of all, I want to I say that I, I, my current definition of abstinence for me is one that I, that I borrowed from somebody else, but I really, really like it. And I, ha I abstain from four things. I abstain from starting over, from negativity, from perfectionism, and from leaving OA. And I want to describe those in terms of, of the first step there. For me, you know, every time I would have one of those binges during my relapse recovery periods, I wouldn't say to myself, I'm going to continue to eat and gain, you know, 100 pounds back, and, I'll, you know, who knows whenever ever I'll be able to stop. What I would say to myself when I was eating, when I was compulsively overeating, was I will start over tomorrow. You know, this is a one day at a time program. That day is not tomorrow. That day is today. I cannot possibly start over tomorrow because when it comes to tomorrow, there'll be another tomorrow right after it. You know, it'll continue on forever and ever for weeks or months or who knows how long I'll continue to eat. And I have to make that today is the day that I'm starting over. So when I say I abstain from starting over, this is actually kind of tied in with the perfectionism. I don't claim perfect abstinence. I claim imperfect abstinence. And you know, if I, if I had an imperfect abstinence and I said I had to start over the next day, I would be in big trouble because I would just leave me to eat the rest of the day. You know, if I say I'm going to start over tomorrow, it's not start, I'm going to start over next minute. It's always starting over tomorrow. I'll have another day of eating. So, so the perfection, no perfectionism and no starting over are tied together for me. And all I can do is if I have more food at one meal than I really wanted to have at that meal, is start over with the next meal. You know, at the next meal, just have an abstinent portion. So, so that's, that's that. And then, you know, no negativity is, is about complaining about life and liberty or, you know, whatever else it is. Complaining about life is no negativity. And finally, I abstain from leaving OA. I have to keep coming back, no matter how many years of abstinence I have, I am never cured. The only way to keep my recovery intact is by going to meetings, as far as I'm concerned. 
I, you know, I theoretically, you know, you could live in a, you could live in a spiritual bliss or something where you wouldn't ever have to go to meetings again, but I need to go to meetings to get in touch with my people. The other way I've heard all of you described is, is God with clothes on, you know, so I need to go to meetings to make that connection to my higher powers and hear your stories and hear your recovery. And, and, um, and that's what I need to do. So, so to me, the, the most important step for that is step one. And I'm, I'm going to talk about recovery from the big book. And um, in the big book, it talks about two things that are part of this addiction. There's the obsession, the, the, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is talked about a lot in the, in the doctor's opinion. And the allergy of the body is the part about the alcoholic that once he starts to take that first drink, he can't stop. And it's the same for me. Once I start to compulsively overeat, I can't stop. You know, I, I'll stop tomorrow. You know, that's my story that I'm telling myself, but it will mean the day after tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. So it's the first bite is the one that does it. And the, the, um, the doctor, in a doctor's opinion, says that this, this is an allergy, which is the phenomena of a craving is limited to this class of alcoholics and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So something has happened to the alcoholic where once he takes that first drink, he can't stop. And it's the same for me as a compulsive reader. Once I've taken that first bite, I can't stop. And, um, and you know, as soon as they take the, the, the first drink, the, the phenomenon of craving at once becomes paramount to all other interests so that, so that an important inter- appointment was not met and he's often drinking again. So, you know, the, that's all. It's beyond my mental control once I've taken that first bite, that first drink or first bite. It's beyond my mental control. And... Um, you know, they talk about the, the, the real alcoholic is the alcoholic who's reached that level of that, of that where that uh, first drink is going to get him to drink over and over again. And, you know, there can, be, there, can people, there can be heavy drinkers who can, you know, drink heavily, but then they can stop and, and stay stopped. But it's the alcoholic that once he takes that first drink, he can't. So if we never, ever took that first bite, we'd be okay, Right. If I never ever took the first bite, I wouldn't be, get that set of craving going. I wouldn't be off and binging again. And why is it that we take that first bite? It's because of the obsession of the mind. And, you know, if, it, if you look at a peanut allergy sufferer, you know, somebody who suffers from a peanut allergy, they have an allergy of the body, and they're told by their doctor, you can never eat another peanut. They don't sit around and obsess, oh, boy, I'd really like to have one peanut. Maybe I'd get by with just a half a peanut or just, you know, I'll just, get a, I'll just take a little lick of peanut butter, you know, something like that. They don't have that kind of obsession of the mind that's making them go out and try it and see if they can get away with it. It's only the, the alcoholics and the compulsive readers that have that obsession of the mind, and that's what results in our, in our struggle with this disease. So, so what is the obsession, the, the obsession of the mind? I heard a speaker one time call it the, the um, seemingly unimportant decisions. She called it the SUDs, the seemingly unimportant decisions. It's where I make a decision to do something that I don't follow through, you know, thinking about the consequences of what I'm going to do. And I just, it seems like it's not that bad. You know, I'll, I'll just have an extra bite of this. That'll be okay. And, you know, maybe the first time I do that, is, it works out okay. And then the next time I take that extra bite, then I have an extra bite beyond that. And then I take an extra bite beyond that. And, and then I'm off and running again. So, so seemingly unimportant decisions. The big book also talks about a number of different terms for it. They call it the insidious insanity, the peculiar mental twist. Um, they talk about the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking because that's the crux of the problem. There was the, there's the alcoholic who decided to put a little whiskey in his milk. 
That was the seemingly unimportant decision. He didn't decide when he was putting that in there that I'm going to end up going back to the hospital for alcoholism. That wasn't part of his decision. It was a seemingly unimportant decision that if I put a little bit of whiskey in my milk, I'll be okay. And um, it's the foolish idea that he could take a whiskey if he only mixed it with milk. And we, we, that the, the obsession of the mind allows us to come up with, with insanely trivial excuses for taking that first bite. And that's, that's what happens. That's part of the, uh, the insane idea that I can take that first bite and, and get away with it. And another example is the jaywalker. You know, it's, it, it's that obsession that he has with, with, taking, with crossing the street illegally. So, um, and then on page 41, there's the story of the man who, as he crossed the threshold of the dining, dining room, the thought came to his mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, just a couple of cocktails. It's that seemingly unimportant decision, that obsession of the mind that got him to start to take the drink. And then once he's taken the drink, then the craving of the body, the allergy of the body kicks in and he's off and running again. The queer mental condition is another term, term for it. Um, they, call, they also call it the strange mental blank spots. By the way, um, all these things I've got here, I've got some notes that I took when I was, that I made when I was um, giving a day in a way up in Petaluma. And if you'd like to get a copy of these, send me an email and I'll uh, send you a copy of the PDF of all these notes. In fact, for the people on the, on the, uh, on the podcast, my email is fbh1949 at gmail.com. That's F as in Frank, B as in Bernard, H as in my last name, H as in uh, high, at 1949, fbh1949 at gmail.com. Anyway, okay. So, um, so that's, the, that's, the, that's the, the first step. It's the obsession of the mind and the allergy of the body. And, and the problem is if I don't take that first step and, and admit it fully and completely that that's, that's my problem, you know, I, I am not going to recover in this program. And in the, um, in the big book and in, in the AA Comes of Age, they talk about um, Bill's, Bill taking his first step. It's on page seven in the big book. And what happened was, he was, it was his second hospitalization. It was in the summer of 1934, I believe. And he heard the doctor talking to his wife. And the doctor said to his wife that if Bill takes another drink, he's either going to die or end up in the insane asylum. And Bill happened to overhear that. And that's when he took the first step, because that really struck him hard. You know, it's like he, he talked about how, you know, alcohol had me beat. That's the way that he expressed taking that first step. Alcohol had me beat. Food had food has me beat. And that was enough for him to be sober for about three or four months, because that was in the summer of 34. And then in November, Armistice Day, November 11th of 34, is when he took the first drink again. So taking step one all by itself can get you a period of abstinence. And hopefully, when you have that period of abstinence, you, you get some other recovery by working the other, other steps of the program, the other 11 steps of the program. Because it's the result of all 12 of those steps gives you a spiritual awakening. That's what it promises at the beginning of the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So the spiritual awakening that you get from the 12 steps is what allows you to overcome that obsession of the mind. So if you can really you know, take that first step and admit that you can't take that first bite, that can get you some abstinence for a while. White knuckles, do whatever you need to do. Go to meetings every day, do it white knuckles, you know, whatever tricks work for you to take, not take that first bite. But while you're doing that, work the 12 steps because that gives you the long-term recovery of, of, of the spiritual awakening that comes from working the steps. 
So Bill, Bill is starting to drink again there on November 11th. And a week or two later, his friend Ebby shows up and he's got this, you know, this, this recovery that he gotten from the Oxford group. And he tells Bill about it. And, you know, Bill's happy that he's not drinking because that means there'll be more alcohol for him. <laughs> and so Bill hears that, but, you know, it doesn't sink in. And finally, Bill notices that he starts to have some of the delirium tremens, some symptoms of delirium tremens. So he figures he better check himself into the hospital. And in AA Comes of Age, they describe this. Bill, on, on the, when he decided to check himself in, he bought four beers. He had one beer going down into the subway in New York, one beer on the subway train, one beer coming out of the subway, and one beer when he was talking to Dr. Towns in the hospital. So that was his last drink, that fourth beer, right, talking to Dr. Towns. And once he was in the hospital there, his friend Ebby came, and they talked about this. In fact, Bill said, oh, boy, he's going to talk about that God stuff again. <laughs> he said that to himself when Ebby showed up. But Ebby didn't talk about the God stuff. He waited for Bill to bring it up. And Bill finally brought it up with Ebby and said, what was that program you were telling me about? And that's when Ebby started telling him about it. And in the hospital there, they worked the steps. I mean, I mean, he couldn't do all of his amends in the hospital, but I'm sure he went out and did the amends as soon as he could after, uh, after he got out of the hospital. But that's where Bill got his, his long-term recovery. And, you know, for the next five or six months, he tried to carry the message on to other alcoholics, and he was unsuccessful. The reason he was unsuccessful is that he would go out and talk to these alcoholics and talk about his spiritual awakening, you know, how wonderful it was, and, you know, it's great, and have it, and nobody was interested in hearing about that. So, so he was completely unsuccessful, and he was getting depressed about that, but his wife told him, yes, but it's kept you sober, Bill. So going out and trying to work with other alcoholics is what kept him sober for that first five or six months before he met Dr. Bob. And then with Dr. Bob, he got his first uh, recovered alcoholic um, that, that he was able to work with. And the difference was Dr. Towns told him that when you talk to these now alcoholics, don't talk about your recovery. Talk about your alcoholism. Get them to identify with your alcoholism. Let them see that you were exactly the same as they are, that you have that same disease that they, they are experiencing so they can identify with you. And then once, once they have that, that identification with you, then if they ask you a question, then you can start telling them about how, how you've recovered. And, you know, but first, gotta get, gotta get, 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 you got to get them to identify with you. And uh, Dr. Bob, when he, he told his wife, I'm only going to talk to them for 15 minutes. You know, a mutual friend made them, had the, made, uh, brought them together at, their, at, his house, at her house. And um, when Dr. Bob was going to the house there, he told his wife, I only want to stay for 15 minutes. He ended up staying for six hours because Bill started with telling about his alcoholism. And Dr. Bob said that, you know, he, this is the first time he's talked to a man who knew what he was talking about in terms of alcoholism. Nobody else can talk about it the way an alcoholic can. And that's what we can do as, as compulsive overeaters. We can talk about compulsive overeating to, to another compulsive overeater in a way that you can't get from a doctor or from a therapist or anybody like that because we have the same experience that they've had. And if we've got the recovery, we can share that recovery with them. So that was the beginning of, of AA in Akron, Ohio in, um, in 1939. So, um, so that's, that's why I think that, that, first step, that the first step is the most important step. And um, let's see, I was gonna talk about something else here. Oh yeah. The, the other thing is, you know, the, the, 
I'm as powerless over my alcoholism as I am over my character defects. You know, I can't, I can't make my character defects go away any more than I can make my alcohol, alcoholism go away. And the, the character defects that I have, and I have tons of them, they all come from one root, and that root is selfishness, selfishness and self-centeredness. And that's what the big book says too. It says on page 62, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our problem. And that root of our problem leads to my compulsive overeating, to my, you know, all of my character defects of, of anger, resentment, fear, you know, you name it. If you look at all my character defects, they're all rooted in selfishness and self-centeredness. And I've got a little, a little um, not a poem exactly, but let me just read it to you. The question is, am I selfish? If I am resentful, it's because someone did not do what I wanted them to do in the past. They did not do it my way, and that is being selfish. If I'm angry, it's because, it's because someone is not doing what I want them to do right now. They're not doing it my way, and that is being selfish. If I am fearful, it's because I know that someone is not going to do what I want them to do in the future. They are not going to do it my way, and that is being selfish. If I feel guilty or remorseful, it's because I got my way at your expense, and that is being selfish. If I feel jealous or envious, it's because someone has, has something I want, and I want it now. That is being selfish. So the selfishness and self-centeredness is, is part of my disease that's led to my compulsive reading and all my other character defects, and I'm as powerful those, powerless over those as I am over my uh, addiction to food. So I need God's help for all those too. Now, I, I told you that I'm not quite at my goal weight right now, and I, the, the problem is, is that I ate just a little bit too much at meals, and it, it wasn't like I went off and binged and you know, had a, a three-week three or three-day or anything like that uh, period of eating anything I wanted. It's just a little bit too much at each meal. And so my, my weight over the last 10 years or so had gradually creeped up about 30 pounds. And I would try to go, get it to go back down again and be some, have some success, and then it would creep up, up again. And about a year and a half ago, I started doing what I call my one, two, three practice before each, each meal. So whenever I'm going to eat a meal, I try to work steps one, two, and three before I eat the meal. And it, it started out by just doing it in my head. You know, I could, I could say step one, two, and three in my head and then go ahead and start eating. And then I realized, you know, if, if, I, if I did something physical instead of just doing it in my head, that would be better. It would be able to sink in more. So I got in agreement with one of my sponsees that I would text him the numbers one, two, three every time I worked the steps one, two, and three in my head before I ate a meal. And, and that, worked, that worked a lot better. But gradually after a while, that kind of became too automatic too, you know, because the long version would be to stay, say the steps. The short version was to say powerless help, because that's really the summary of one, two, and three. I'm powerless over food and I need your help, higher power. So I did just, I did that and then I text one, two, three, and then about six months ago, I started to do a long form, a long form one, two, three. So I used my dictation into my text message app on my phone, and I would dictate it. I'll give you a typical one right now, and I'm, I'm going to put all the punctuation in because that's what I have to do to get Google to get the punctuation right. So, so I would say, dearest beloved higher power, comma, I am powerless over food, and my life is unmanageable, period. I'm also powerless over my selfishness and self-centeredness, period. I have gathered evidence that you can restore me to sanity with both of those addictions, period. Therefore, please help me make a wise choice about dinner for this meal, period. Also, help me to be loving, comma, kind, comma, patient, comma, forgiving, comma, helpful with everyone I interact with today, 
period. And I need to, I need to practice all those spiritual virtues, both in my thoughts, comma, and in my actions, period. More God, comma, less Frank, comma, is my motto, period. Dearest beloved higher power, thank you for all your help, exclamation mark. And then after I dictate that, then I have to go in and correct anything that Google got wrong. <laughs> and then I have to change all the dearest beloved higher powers that capitalized, because you know God has to be capitalized. So I, I do the capitalization on those. Luckily, my phone learned that I want to do that and makes it easy to do. And, and then I hit send. So, so that has been working a lot better. And I've made some progress there. I still got about five pounds to go to get to what my goal weight is. But, um, but that's been working better. And the other thing I've noticed is it's helped with my other character defects. You know, adding all those things in there about being powerless over my selfishness, self-centeredness, and asking for the spiritual virtues of being loving, loving, kind, patient, forgiving, and helpful. Those are not things that come natural to me. You know, there, there are other people that, that it comes natural to, but it doesn't come natural to me. So doing all that has allowed me to notice at times when I'm starting to get upset about something and, and catch myself, you know, that's the thing. I, I can start to catch myself and then change my point of view and with God's help. I mean, it's all, it's the catching me is what God is helping me do, catch myself doing that. And then that gives me the ability to, to, to change my, my um, outlook on life. So, um, so doing that one, two, three practice has been um, a, a, a great benefit to me. And even if I get to my goal weight, I intend to do this one, two, three practice for the rest of my life. And um, I wanted to thank all of you for coming to hear me, and I'll like to open it up to you now.